What does it look like for us to trust God? It's one thing for us to say that we believe God, that we believe he is who he says he is. Believe that he's there. But what does it actually look like for us to trust him on Monday morning? Or on Thursday afternoon? And perhaps more importantly, when life is not going the way we want it to. When things aren't turning out the way we had hoped. Who or what are we going to trust in in that moment? See, this is not about belief and unbelief in some kind of abstract sense, but rather this is about belief and unbelief in a very real and practical sense, in real life. When you come to a crossroads in your life, you come to an intersection of your life, a a crisis of faith, a moment of crisis in your life, what is it that you're leaning on most heavily to make the decision as to which road to take? In Isaiah chapter 7, we're going to read about the king of Judah at this time, whose name is Ahaz. And he's at such a crossroads in chapter 7. And who or what will he lean on most heavily to decide which road to take at his crossroads? And what we learn from him is that trusting God at the crossroads of our life, when that happens, while that may not seem to be the most strategic thing, the most expedient thing, or even the safest road to take. It is the wise road, and it is the road of faith, and so it is the right road for us to take. You see, at our crossroads, at every crossroads that we encounter, there is a a road of faith and there is the road of Ahaz, the road of belief and the road of unbelief. The road of trusting God and the road of not trusting God. And Isaiah's words here in chapter 7 will exhort us to take the road of faith, the road of belief, the road of trusting God over and against the road of unbelief and the road of Ahaz. So let's read Isaiah chapter 7 together. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Romalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of the these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Romalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Romalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tahil, Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razan. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. 
and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is at the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that, in that day the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired from beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk they will give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns, and as for the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and we ask that in Jesus' name you would speak to us this morning from it. Father, we ask that you would prepare us to hear from you. And Lord, to be challenged. That for those of us who find ourselves at a crossroads, or for those of us who perhaps were at the cusp of a crossroads, Lord, that you would enable us through the example of Isaiah's words through you to Ahaz to choose to take the path of belief rather than the path of unbelief. To choose to trust you in the midst of that crossroads, no matter how challenging it becomes. Teach us this morning, Lord, and through your word, form us to look more like Jesus. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Chapters 1 through 5, we called that the prefix to the book of Isaiah. And the prophecies that we encountered in chapters 1 through, through 5, you might recall, were more generic in nature. They had very few historical markers in them. Well, that all changes now. Now, after the public commissioning of Isaiah from chapter 6, now we begin to see several historical markers that will help us to figure out what's going on in these prophecies that he gives us. And verse 1 begins with one of those historical markers. He says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So last week in chapter 6, we had the throne room vision, and we're told that that throne room vision was given in the year that King Uzziah died. Well, now we're talking about Uzziah's grandson, Ahaz. Uzziah's son was named Jotham. We read about him in 2 Kings 15, 2 Chronicles chapter 27. But Isaiah, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, fast forward 16 years through Jotham's reign to Ahaz's reign. This is Uzziah's grandson, King Ahaz. Now, there is much real estate in the book of Isaiah that is devoted to King Ahaz and prophecies about him and prophecies for Judah during the reign of Ahaz. And we will encounter this guy for many, many more chapters as we continue to make our way through this book. But for now, we simply need to know that he was categorically not a good king. Unlike Jotham, his father, and unlike his grandfather Uzziah, and even his great-grandfather Amaziah, King Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. He was a 
evil king. He did not trust God, and he didn't follow the counsel of God's servant, Isaiah. In fact, in many ways, as we look at Ahaz, we see a real-life example of the kind of audience and the kind of mission that God promised Isaiah in the last chapter that he was going to encounter in this ministry that God had given to him. That you're going to go now, Isaiah, and you're going to preach to a people who will see but not perceive. Who in result of you preaching the word to them, their heart will only grow harder and their eyes will only grow more blind. And and, and that's exactly, that's a good description of of what we find in King Ahaz and who he turned out to be. So what happened during his reign that gives rise to what we find here in chapter 7. Well, what happened is that King Ahaz comes to a crossroads. He comes to a crossroads, a moment of crisis, a crisis of faith is presented to him. A moment in his reign that will define his reign and his life forever and in all posterity, as it's recorded in Scripture for us. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 continues, In those days during the reign of King Ahaz, Razan, this king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Ramalia, or the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so Syria, and in some cases the Bible will call this area Aram, or it will refer to the capital of this this empire, which was Damascus. It's the land that's north, just north and east of Palestine. Syria joins forces here with the northern kingdom of Israel, who's referred to in Isaiah as either Israel or Ephraim or Jacob or by its capital, which was Samaria. And so Syria and Israel join forces. They align together, they, and they come up against Jerusalem. And Ahaz, who's the king of, of Judah, he, he learns of this alliance. He learns what he's going to do, what they're trying to do. And both he and the people of Judah are very much afraid. They're told that their hearts shake like the trees shake in the midst of a great wind. Now, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles are historical narratives that give us a lot of background, historical background, that helps us to understand the context of this alliance between Syria and Israel. The new king of the Assyrian Empire, a fellow by the name of Tiglath-Pileser III, had come to reign, and he had begun to set his imperial sights southward. He wanted to conquer all that land, all the way down to include Egypt. Now, the Assyrian Empire, we have to remember, was the world empire at this time in the 8th century. It it was pretty much the Assyrians and the Egyptians. It's kind of like during the Cold War. It was the U.S. and the Soviet Union. During the 8th century, it was the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And then all these other little empires, the little countries like Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And all these little countries knew that they had practically no chance of defending themselves against the advancing Assyrian army as it marched southward to conquer more lands. They knew they had practically no chance of defending themselves by themselves. And so they began to look for how they could form alliances with one another in order to mount a more fortified defense when the Assyrians eventually would invade their lands. So this is what led to the alliance between Syria and Israel. We're told that the king of Syria at this time was a fellow by the name of Razan, and the king of Israel was Pekah, the son of Ramalia. And so they form an alliance. But they really want Judah to join their alliance to make it stronger. Let's all unite together so we can defend against the Assyrians when they come. 
but they know that this Ahaz is not going to do that. The southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel had been warring for generations at this point. And they knew that Ahaz was not ever going to join forces with them. And so their plan is to attack them, conquer them, and then put in place a puppet king of their own choosing. A guy by the name of, or, or, who, or who is called the son of Tabeel, down in verse 6. And so King Ahaz is at a crossroads. He's understandably fearful of this new alliance between Syria and Israel. And they're advancing on Jerusalem. They're, they're making their way to lay siege, the land of Judah. And it shakes him and the people of Judah to their core, like trees shaking in a great wind. And perhaps the only thing that he's more afraid of than this Syrian-Israeli alliance is the Assyrian Empire itself that they had formed alliance to try to defend against. And so he's at this crossroads. Which, which army does he fear more? And who is he going to throw in with? Who is he going to link arms with? Well, before we find out, the Lord in his kindness has a word for Isaiah through the prophet Isaiah. As, Isaiah, as Ahaz is, is at this crossroads and pondering what to do, the Lord speaks to him. Verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Yashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, what is Ahaz doing out there with, in, in, in the, basically the, the water conduit that brought water into Jerusalem? What's, he, what's the king doing out there? Well, he's inspecting the water supply. A generation later, his son Hezekiah will, will fortify this and he'll build a tunnel and the water will come into Jerusalem through this uh, underwater aqueduct that Hezekiah builds. But at this point, the water is exposed. So what's he doing inspecting the water supply? Well, he's preparing for a siege. He's preparing for Jerusalem to be attacked by this army alliance from Syria and uh, from Israel. And so... Why is he getting ready for this siege? Well, perhaps it's because he had decided, or at least at this point was considering, throwing in with the Assyrians themselves and counting on them to come to his aid in defending against the Syrian-Israeli alliance. And as we read through 2 Kings chapter 16, that's exactly what we find out Ahaz in fact did. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. For now, he's just out there inspecting the water supply. God tells Isaiah the prophet to go out there and meet with him. And by the way, bring with you your son named Shear Yashub. And his son's name means a remnant will return. And I want you to give Ahaz a message. And what is the message that God has for Ahaz as he stands at his crossroads? Verse 4. Say to him, be careful. Be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razan and Syria and the son of Romalia. An army is about to lay siege to your city. And a larger, more imposing, more menacing army is just to the north of them. What is Ahaz going to do? The Lord tells him in that moment, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Why does Ahaz need the Lord to give him this particular word at this moment as he stands at this crossroads? Well, it's because this crisis that he's in is likely to cause him to do the exact opposite He's afraid, he's anxious, he's worried. And this crisis may tempt him to do something rash, something unwise and foolish, rather than being careful and quiet. His, his fear and his faintness of heart may cause him to give in to unbelief. And so the Lord warns him. 
Don't do that, Ahaz. Slow down. Slow down. Calm down. Be careful. Don't give in to your fear and don't give in to unbelief. And isn't this what we're sometimes tempted to do when we find ourselves at a crossroads? When we find ourselves in a moment of crisis? You know, we trust the Lord on Sunday morning when we gather together with our brothers and sisters and we worship the Lord together. It's easy for us to trust the Lord in this room. It's easy for us to trust the Lord when we gather in our homes with our base group friends or in our men's and women's Bible studies. It's easy to trust, say that we trust the Lord in those moments, but then Sunday morning comes and there's a crisis. There's a crossroads. And it's a scary crossroads. And we're afraid. And we're anxious. And it's then that we need to hear the warning that Ahaz received from the Lord. Be careful. Be quiet. Slow down. Calm down. Don't just react emotionally. Don't let fear rule the day. Don't give in to unbelief because, you know, unbelief is most often triggered not by reason, uh, reasoning, but by crisis and by emotion. And so in that emotional crisis, we need to be reminded that, that fear often gives way to unbelief. And we need to be warned of that tendency. So that's what the Lord does with Ahaz. But in addition to reminding him of what not to do, not to give in to fear or unbelief, the Lord in, in his kindness also gives Ahaz truth. He offers to him truth. Truth in the form of a prophecy of, of how this is going to work out. He, he tells them what's going to happen, verses 7 through 9. Thus says the Lord God to Ahaz, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. I couldn't help but think of Gandalf there as he speaks to Balrog on the bridge, right? You shall not pass. The Lord in his sovereignty says, I know they seem menacing. I know they look powerful. And I know you seem small. But listen, it's not going to happen. This alliance of Syria and Israel, as they come against you, it's going to fail. Mark my words, Ahaz. It won't work. It won't stand. It won't come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that is Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. In other words, Ahaz, both Syria and Israel will be destroyed. The siege that is coming on Jerusalem, it'll fail. It won't come to pass. It, it won't work. And in fact, they themselves will end up being conquered by Assyria. This is a promise of salvation to Ahaz. God, God is giving to him a, 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 some, some truth, a, a promise of deliverance. He's going to deliver both Ahaz and Judah. But then the Lord concludes with this warning to Ahaz. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. In other words, if you don't believe, Ahaz, if you choose the road of unbelief as opposed to the road of belief, then not only will Syria and Israel fall, but you and Judah will fall as well. So, so what Isaiah is doing here is, is bringing good news to King Ahaz. God is giving him good news of salvation from this army. Deliverance. This alliance will fail. And in fact, both of those countries will end up themselves falling to Assyria. But in order for this salvation to be personally efficacious for Ahaz, it required him to believe God's truth, to embrace God's truth, to trust in God at this crossroads. Ahaz, if you're not firm in your faith, then you will not be firm at all. But not only does God provide warning to Ahaz, 
Don't give in to fear. Don't give in to, want, to unbelief. And not only does he give him truth to embrace and believe and hold on to, but he also offers Ahaz a sign. And here we begin to see how God is so gracious and kind and merciful to Ahaz in this. He's offering him a sign. And the rest of the chapter really unpacks this sign of Emmanuel. In verse 11, the Lord gives a command to Ahaz. The Lord speaks to Ahaz and says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Ask me to prove myself, Ahaz. Ask for a sign. And the word ask there is an imperative verb in the Hebrew. It's a command. He gives Ahaz a command. Ask me for a sign, Ahaz. Ask me to prove this out to you. But how does Ahaz respond? Verse 12. I will not ask. I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. Could he sound any more piously disingenuous? Oh, I don't want to bother the Lord with this. I'll just take care of this myself. I, I don't want to, you know, put the Lord my God to the test. What's he doing there? He's quoting from Scripture. It's Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, that says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But he's totally ignoring the context of that verse. Because the context of that verse is about God's people testing God by questioning whether or not God was really with them or not. That's not at all what's happening here with Ahaz. The Lord himself spoke to Ahaz, gave him a direct command. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz not only refuses, but to make matters worse, he misquotes and misuses scripture. He misuses God's word as a means of avoiding God's commands. Church, when the Lord speaks to us, and you know he does, Every time we pick up this book, every time we pick up this book and read God's word, he speaks to us. And a lot of the time when he speaks to us, he, he tells us what we ought to do or what we ought not to do. He does give commands to us. He tells us something that we should do or not do. And church, when that happens, we need to obey. We need to learn to practice to obey when God tells us to do something. And we certainly should not be pulling an Ahaz by misusing Scripture as an excuse to avoid obeying His Word. So what does God do when Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign? Well, we might expect Him to say, that's it, Ahaz, I'm done with you. But He doesn't. Instead, He says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to give you a sign anyway which just further demonstrates God's kindness and grace and mercy to Ahaz as he stands at this crossroads in church. Our God is gracious and mercy, merciful and patient and kind with us when we stand at our crossroads seeking to follow him, seeking to trust in him. So God gives Ahaz a sign, and he tells him that this sign is going to be a, a baby. It's going to be a child. Verse 14 Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? That verse is familiar to us because Matthew ends up using that in his gospel and he applies it to the birth of Christ. Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23, he says this, All this took place, and he's referring there to the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we know where this is going, right? This is pointing us to Jesus. That God promised King David some 200 years prior to this meeting between Ahaz and, and Isaiah, God promised King David that there would be one that came from his lineage who would sit on the throne of King David forever. That there would be a forever king from the line of David. 
and that this child would be Emmanuel, God with us. And our response, church, to this sign should be to trust in God's presence because through Christ, God is still with us today. But there's also an immediate referent in Isaiah's day. The word for virgin here is the Hebrew word Alma, which, though it could refer specifically to a, a, a young woman who is a virgin, it is not her virginity that it, that it emphasizes. Instead, it is her, her youth. And so this is specifically a young woman. So there's a young woman in Isaiah's day, probably in King Ahaz's court, who's pregnant. And Isaiah says she's going to have a son, and his name is going to be, they're going to call him, she's going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, and this, Isaiah says, God says to uh, King Ahaz through Isaiah, this is going to be a sign for you, King Ahaz. Now, what is a sign? A sign is a, a, a person or an event or a, or a thing or an object that points to a greater reality that has significance and truth. It, it points to something, something greater than itself. That's what a sign is. Later this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And that will be a sign to us. The, the, the bread will be a, a sign of Jesus' body that was broken for us. The juice will be a sign of the blood that was shed for us. And it will point to a greater reality than the bread and the juice. So this baby boy would be a sign to Ahaz. And it will be a sign of what would happen to this Syrian-Israeli alliance when they come up against Jerusalem. The Lord goes on in the next few verses, verses 15 and 16, to, to tell Ahaz that before this boy gets to a certain age, an age where he's going to know right from wrong, probably five or six or somewhere in that age, before he gets to that age, the land of Syria and Israel will be deserted. So the baby was that God was going to ensure that Jerusalem would be spared. That, that this siege would not work and that they wouldn't fall into the hands of this allied force between Syria and Israel. And in fact, those lands would be the ones to fall and be destroyed by Assyria. But again, the sign required that Ahaz trust in God. He will keep his promises and he will do what he said he will do. But sadly, Ahaz doesn't do this. Ahaz doesn't believe in the sign because Ahaz is not trusting in God. Instead of resting on God's promises, the truth that God had just given to him, and believing that God would do what he said instead, what we find recorded in, in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles chapter 28 is that Ahaz tragically, incredibly, unbelievably, he reaches out to Assyria for help. He reaches out to the very empire that these alliances had been formed to try to defend themselves against. He reaches out to Assyria, which is crazy. Ray Ortland says that this is like a mouse that's being attacked by two rats reaching out to a cat for help. The cat's going to protect the mouse from the two rats but only because he wants a little mouse snack for himself. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Assyria does indeed come to Judah's aid and defeats the two rats. Syria itself falls in 732 B.C. and Israel, the northern kingdom, falls in 722 B.C. But then the cat, as cats do, turns on the mouse. And Assyria lays siege on Jerusalem in 701 B.C. Ahaz's grand plan to align himself and Judah with Assyria backfires. And it backfires tremendously. And much of what we'll see over the next several chapters in the book of Isaiah will be the fallout of that. Not just militarily. Not just politically but ethically, morally, culturally, everything goes downhill from this point 
for Judah. But here's the thing. God knows exactly what Ahaz was going to do. He knew what was in Ahaz's heart and that Ahaz was not going to trust God in this, at this crossroads. But rather, he was going to trust in his own alliance building skills. Taking matters into his own hands. God, God knew all this in advance. Which, by the way, is why God told Isaiah to bring his son, Shear Yashub, with him. Remember what his name meant. A remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. So along with him, he brings the son and, and, and the presence of Isaiah's boy with that name in that moment was a foreshadowing that, that Ahaz was not going to trust God and it would end in the judgment of Judah, but a remnant would return. God knew in advance that Ahaz would not trust in God. That's why there was that extra warning there at the end of verse 9. He tells them the good news that this alliance is going to fail. They're not going to win. It's not going to stand. But then he warns them. Ahaz, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You won't stand at all. God knew in advance that Ahaz would not trust in him. And that's why there's a long-term referent for that sign, the baby boy born of a virgin, whose name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Why? Because Ahaz would not trust in God at his crossroads. God knew that. And it, he knew that it would be the beginning of the end for God's people. But God would one day bring another baby boy from the line of David. And this one would be the one who would save God's people from their sin. God knew in advance that Ahaz would not trust in him. So, in verse 17, in response to the knowledge of, in advance of Ahaz's unbelief that he was not going to trust in God, God promises judgment. Because Ahaz would not trust in God, verse 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have, have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Judgment's coming, Judah, because of Ahaz's unbelief. Ahaz, you may find temporary relief. You might, may find temporary peace in the land because of the Assyrians coming to your aid. But the cat's going to turn on the mouse. And the remainder of the chapter, verses 18 through 25, are a description of the consequences that God introduces to Judah and to Ahaz as a result of the Assyrians, in fact, turning on them just a few years later. In verses 18 and 19, we're told the Lord will whistle to the fly in Egypt and the bee that is in Assyria, and that they would come and settle in Judah. It's remarkable the the descriptions here of the, of the sovereignty and majesty of God. Isaiah is attempting to, in Ahaz's mind and in our mind, elevate the majesty and power and sovereignty of God. All he has to do is whistle to the enemies of God's people that he's going to use as his instruments of judgment, and they're going to come, and they're going to invade. This is a picture of invasion of enemy forces. Verse 20, we're told that the Lord is going to use the Assyrian Empire as a razor, Again, we see the, the majesty and power and sovereignty of God. He's going to pick up the Assyrian army like a razor. He's going to shave the head, and he says the hair of the feet, and even the beard of Judah. This is a sign of utter humiliation that's going to result. It's going to be one of the consequences of the Assyrian siege on Jerusalem. In verses 21 and 22, he says that those who remain, they're going to eat curds and honey. This is the food of nomads. You're going to live a nomadic life. In your own homeland, so bad will this siege be. And then in verses 23 through 25, we're told over and over again that the land in that day will be filled with briars and thorns. 
which tells us that throughout the Assyrian siege, the land itself will be wild and neglected and unproductive for growing crops. And so what does that mean? That means severe judgment and consequences are coming as a result of Ahaz's unbelief. Because of his unbelief, because of because he's not trusting in God, he took matters into his own hands. As a result of that, judgment and consequences resulted. But you know, judgment and consequences aren't always bad. Sometimes we need to look for the grace of God in the midst of judgment. The cross of Jesus Christ meant judgment for sin. And that the consequences of our sin were laid on the shoulders of Christ himself. And so there was not only judgment at the cross, but there was grace there as well. And when God brings consequences and discipline to his people, it is not to destroy them, but it is to purify them, to make us holy, to form us into his son's likeness. God judged Judah for her sin, but in judgment... There was also grace because there was a remnant. God was sending ultimately another virgin, a real virgin this time, who would give birth to another boy who would represent God being with his people forever. So when we find ourselves wavering in unbelief, like Ahaz, it's going to have negative consequences in our lives. As a result of that, both for us and the people around us, like for Ahaz and the people of Judah. So what is our hope? Our hope is Christ. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Emmanuel, God with us. And we must learn to trust him at our crossroads. Now, again, that's easy for us to say, right? Trust in God. It's easy for us to trust God when things are going well. But when things aren't going well, when things aren't turning out the way we had hoped they would, it's a different thing. When we're presented with a moment of crisis, life is unmanageable, things are out of our hands, we are clearly not in control, and the stakes are high, and the pressure's on, we can begin to doubt whether or not God is truly with us in that moment. And we can begin to doubt whether or not his way is truly best in that moment or not. That's our crossroads. We all have them. And the question is, will we trust God or will we take matters into our own hands in that moment? So what does it look like for us to trust God at our crossroads? What does it actually look like? Well, it looks like doing the exact opposite of Ahaz. Instead of giving in to fear and unbelief and anxious thoughts, instead of ignoring God's word and the truth that we find in God's word, and instead of taking matters into our own hands, we, we trust God and we take him at his word and we, and we live based on that. We act like we are trusting him at his word. It might be helpful for us to think through an example and walk through an example of what this would look like in the life of a believer. Let's think about the example of a young couple who desperately wants a child. But for some reason, the womb is yet to be opened. They have not been given a child. Well, first, what would unbelief look like? What would not trusting in God in that moment look like? Well, for us to know what it looks like to not trust in God, we need to simply ask, what would it look like to be like Ahaz in that situation? So what would it look like to be like Ahaz in the situation of childlessness? It would be to conclude things like, looks like God has forgotten about us. Maybe he doesn't love us anymore. Maybe God doesn't trust us enough to give us a child. Maybe he doesn't hear our prayers. Or maybe our infertility is judgment for our sin. 
Maybe infertility is too big of a problem for him to solve. Or maybe, like Ahaz, we think maybe God isn't really with us. So maybe we should just give up. Or maybe we should take matters into our own hands and do like Abraham did and work out some kind of weird, crazy surrogate thing where I sleep with another woman in order to get her pregnant and have a child by them. Take matters into our own hands. What does it look like for us to trust God in that situation? It is to know and believe and trust that God is still with us, even in the midst of childlessness. It is to know and believe that he's still Emmanuel, he's still there. And we can know his presence in our lives through the spirit that he's given us through faith in Christ. And since only God can open the womb, we need to learn to trust that even in this, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Maybe we can consider adoption and pour our energies into that, but you know, even if God closes that door, then it's just not meant to be. And we will need to lean on God to give us the strength and the faith to trust him nonetheless. So Christian, when we find ourselves in a crossroads, whatever that crossroads is for you in your life, you're scared, you're anxious, and there are two roads in front of you, the road of belief, the road of unbelief, the road of faith, the road of trusting God, and the road of Ahaz. Let us remember that God warns us as he warns Ahaz, don't give in to fear. Don't give in to unbelief. We need to remember that God has given us an abundance of truth in his word. The question is, are we embracing it? Are we believing it? Are we taking it as ourselves? Like with Ahaz, God gives us commands in his word And obeying the commands of Scripture is kind of like building up our faith muscles in preparation for these moments of crisis, in preparation for when we find ourselves standing at the crossroads. And if we're not practicing obedience to God's Word and and building up those faith muscles in that that way, then then when we stand at that crossroads, we're, we're that much more likely to not trust in God. Instead, to take the road of unbelief. And like with Ahaz, sometimes God provides us with consequences when we don't trust in him. But even in those consequences, there is grace and there is hope. And our hope is that sign, same sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And because God is with us through Christ, we don't have to take the road of Ahaz. Because God is with us and because God is in us through faith in Jesus, now we can trust God at our crossroads. So friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross as your only hope, to escape the judgment that we all deserve because of our sin against him, then can I just tell you, this is your crossroads. Right here, right now, this is your crossroads. And I appeal to you, friend, don't take matters into your own hands. And don't take lightly the gravity of your condition as a sinner stained with unrighteousness who stands before a holy and righteous God. You stand before that God condemned. And your only hope is a sign. The virgin gave birth to a son, and his name was called Emmanuel. And he lived a perfect life. And he died in the place of sinners. And he rose from the dead three days later for our justification. Friend, will you trust in this Christ? 
Will you place your faith in this Jesus and be rescued, redeemed, and forgiven? Or will you take the road of unbelief? Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name right now that for those who are far from you in this room this morning, Lord, that you would draw them to yourselves. God, I ask that you would meet with them right in the middle of their heart, right as they sit there. God, we ask that you would give them faith to trust in Jesus as their only hope for rescue. Lead them, Father, to a place of repentance, to turn from their sin and their self-rule and to turn to Jesus and his rule over their lives. We ask that you would redeem sinners to become saints and worshipers of you this morning. Father, those of us who know you and love you and yet still struggle in trusting you, Lord, we ask that you'd help us. Help us to trust you, Lord, in the small things and in those crossroads that you sometimes lead us to. Lord, help us to heed the warning not to give in to fear and unbelief. Lord, help us to take you truly at your word and act on that. And Lord, we... We ask that you would answer the prayer that for us that that the father of the epileptic boy in Luke 6 prayed. As Jesus said, if if you believe, he will be well. And Lord, the father said, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's what we cry out to you, Lord. We're at the crossroads. We're, 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 We're fighting to believe. Our cry is, Lord, we do believe. Would you help us in our unbelief? Father, would you be glorified and magnified in us as we learn to trust you until you bring us home? God, magnify yourself in our lives, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.